This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. I got to tell you, that made all hell break loose. I did not even need headphones to hear the TV boss upstairs shouting, Get her the hell up here! Now! I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed to publicly correct your boss or some other esteemed figure? Talk about awkward, right? I faced that challenge on live TV one time, on the day the space shuttle was scheduled to launch for the very first time. The year was 1981. Excitement at the Johnson Space Center in Houston had been building since early January, as the launch date seemed to be holding firm at last. STS-1 would launch in early April. I was one of a group known as the 35 New Guys, the first astronauts NASA hired specifically to fly the space shuttle. After arriving in 1978, we spent our first three years rotating through various jobs supporting preparations for the first flight. We all wanted to be as close to the action as possible for this big event. My job at the time had no direct link to the mission, however, so I had resigned myself to just watching it on television. You can imagine my delight then when I learned that I had been assigned to support one of the national media outlets during the mission. As was common in the astronaut office back then, this news came with no specific guidance. The head of the astronaut office, Skylab veteran P.J. Weitz, simply said to me, I'm assigning you to provide media support to ABC. Their crew has already set up camp on site, so go talk to them. The national media teams covered shuttle flights from a cluster of trailers set up near the huge antennas that connected mission control to the universe. I found the one with the ABC logo on it and went inside. The very first person I met was a portly gentleman with an amiable smile. He said I needed to talk to the guy in charge of the overall production unit. That guy was not smiling, and in fact seemed rather annoyed by my arrival. We already have our TV talent, he said gruffly. You go, you go do radio. I slunk off to find the radio crew, feeling rather like I had walked into the front door of a palace and been quickly shooed off to my proper place in the servants' quarters. 
The radio crew, on the other hand, was a delightfully laid-back bunch, and they explained why the TV boss had dismissed me so abruptly. ABC had hired Apollo veteran Gene Cernan to be their expert TV commentator, betting he would add gravitas to their coverage and help them stand out among the competition. They also thought it would be cool to have the last man who walked on the moon cover a launch that marked the dawn of a new era of spaceflight. Now, you didn't need such elaborate logic to see that Gene was a superb choice for TV commentator. He was a seasoned veteran astronaut with three space flights and three moonwalks to his name, and a handsome man to boot. I fretted a bit about being shunted off to radio, but only because I knew a TV assignment would guarantee I would be at the Cape and get to witness the launch in person. Happily, I soon learned that ABC had already decided to send both the radio and TV crews to Florida for the launch, so I'd get my front row seat after all. Down at the Cape, NASA had set up two-story production booths for each of the three major networks, just across the road from the launch control building. The TV news desk was on the upper level, with a beautiful clear view of the launch pad as backdrop. The radio folks and technicians would work on the lower level, crammed in around small tables amid boxes and racks of equipment. Our crew arrived in Florida on April 8th and hurried out to the launch site to make sure our equipment was ready. Cocoa Beach was absolutely buzzing with excitement. It had been six years since the Kennedy Space Center last launched American astronauts into space, years that had been filled with hard work and great uncertainty as the shuttle team plowed through engineering challenges and bureaucratic loops one after another. Now, at last, there was a spaceship on the launch pad and a countdown clock ticking off the days, hours, and minutes until liftoff. Every road for miles around was lined with signs and banners saying, we're go for launch, or Godspeed, STS-1. Everybody working on the launch was excited, too, but our excitement was tempered by a keen awareness of how many hundreds of things had to go just exactly right to get the shuttle off the ground, and how many things could go wrong, possibly very wrong. April 10, 1981. Liftoff was slated for 7 a.m. The ABC team was in place by 4, rechecking equipment and monitoring the progress of the countdown. Right on time at 5 a.m., Commander John Young and Pilot Bob Crippen went out to the launch pad and boarded the shuttle. T-minus 20 minutes, the countdown clock stopped. This was a planned hold, a built-in pause that served as a cushion against unexpected events. It also allowed the launch team engineers in Florida to sync up with their counterparts back at Houston's Mission Control Center. Now, you might think that the launch is a sure thing, if everything's in good order at this point. But the reverse is actually true. The most critical and potentially dangerous steps all lie ahead and each one will be subjected to ever more intense scrutiny. Ten minutes later, the countdown clock started ticking down again as planned. The next big step was to switch the shuttle's five onboard computers over to the flight mode. Four of these computers ran exactly the same software, 
their primary flight software called PASS. The identical fifth machine was the backup. It ran a slimmed down set of code called the BFS for backup flight system. This had been written by a completely different team of people as insurance against the possibility that a fatal flaw had been baked into the primary system and not detected by any of the testing. Right on time, the launch director instructed Crip, as he is widely known, to switch the computers to flight mode. A moment later, I heard Crip say, BFS is not tracking the pass. I knew instantly that we were not going anywhere that day. The backup machine was supposed to shadow the four primary computers step by micro step so it could take over seamlessly if the crew pressed an emergency button. It wasn't doing that. And until it was perfectly clear why it wasn't, the shuttle was going to stay on the ground. Nobody in TV land realized this, however. To them, Cripps' report about the BFS was just another bit of NASA jargon, and the countdown clock was still running, so everything seemed okay. It would keep ticking away, in fact, until it hit the next built-in hold at T-9 minutes. That was when the launch team would take stock of the computer problem and decide what to do next. I was absolutely certain they would decide to scrub the launch. Nobody was going to rush through troubleshootings such a serious problem, especially on the very first flight of this complex new spacecraft. Meanwhile, at the news desk on the floor above me, Dean and anchorman Frank Reynolds chatted away about what the crew was doing in the cockpit and what big milestones were coming up next in the countdown. Gene had clearly done a lot of homework. He was doing a great job of explaining both the countdown procedure and the shuttle itself. But I could tell that neither of them had the faintest clue that we were headed towards a scrub instead of a launch. We hit the T-minus nine hold in due course. Frank Reynolds had clearly planned to use the 10 minutes scheduled for this pause to talk about the significance of this inaugural mission and build drama around the final minutes of the countdown. But when the appointed 10 minutes had passed, the countdown clock remained frozen. I could tell things were now getting tense on the TV set. Reynolds had used up all his prepared material. He and the producer were scrambling madly to fill the unexpected airtime. Empty airwaves are death in television. But this was getting harder and harder as the hold stretched on. Soon, Frank asked Jean to explain in more detail how the shuttle computer systems worked and exactly what had gone wrong. This clearly pushed Jean beyond the limits of his homework. He fell back on his general computer smarts and Apollo experience to answer as best he could. This wasn't going to get him very far, though, because the shuttle computer system was utterly unlike the Apollo system. Sure enough, Gene's explanations quickly went from, yeah, not quite, to, yeah, no, dead flat wrong. At which point, I tapped one of the radio guys on the shoulder and asked, uh, does it matter that what Gene's saying is wrong? I got to tell you, that made all hell break loose. I did not even need headphones to hear the TV boss upstairs shouting, get her the hell up here now. Next thing I knew, I was up on the TV set with Frank Reynolds. 
me. Happily dressed in radio casual, I was now on national television and facing the delicate challenge of contradicting the famous veteran astronaut sitting across from me on the news desk. I felt like David standing before Goliath. How in the world should I handle this? All I could think of was a common joke around the astronaut office about how to deal with those awkward moments when you have to correct a senior officer or some other august official, like maybe that man over there who drove a dune buggy on the moon. You don't say outright that the big man is dead flat wrong. Instead, you open with, well, what the captain meant to say was, and then just give the correct answer. I crossed my fingers that this would work. And thankfully, Frank Reynolds did not ask me straight up whether what Gene had said was right. He threw me an easy softball instead, which let me set the record straight very gracefully. As I expected, NASA announced minutes later that the launch was scrubbed. We would try again two days later, and I would be very happily back on the radio desk. You know, life is full of unexpected and delicate situations. And I've come to learn that how we navigate them will affect what doors open and close to us far into the future. And the larger the audience watching us is in those sticky moments, the more this is true. So think about who's watching you. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.